I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Work Stories is a place for women of color to share their experiences in the workplace. We're no longer whispering these stories to our best friends and partners and then shoving them to the backs of our minds and just dealing. We're talking about bias, equal pay, bad bosses, racist hiring practices, and all the crazy things your coworkers have done or said to you. This is a safe place to tell those stories. The floor is open, y'all. We are telling it all. Today, we're talking about all things ADHD and neurodivergence. Our next guest knows the challenges of navigating her ADHD in the workplace, and she's giving advice to those of you who might also be struggling with yours. She's also educating those of you who are working with or managing folks with neurodivergent brains. So basically all of you. Let's hear from her. My name is Danny. I currently am living in New York City, and I work as a product researcher in the tech industry. But more importantly, I'm a huge mentor health advocate and have an academic clinical psych background. That is more of my passion and product research is what pays the bills. I saw a video that you posted on social about struggles like having ADHD at work. So attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. (laughs) I got it. (laughs) Honestly, if I wasn't pseudo academic, I would just call it ADD because ADHD like doesn't have the same flow. But you know, to be correct about it, ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, the H was recently added in the last round of the DSM-5, which is like the mental health dictionary, if you will. And I actually disagree with it because a lot of people don't experience that hyperactivity part of it. Mm -hmm. So it kind of gets people looking for something that isn't totally encapsulating of the ADHD experience. So it is that can't sustain attention, but it's so, so, so much more than that. And there's three types, inattentive, hyperactive, and combined type. And I would say I'm more combined or inattentive, but the hyperactivity kind of stems from how ADHD was formed as a diagnosis. They had a study that was only including middle-class white boys, young boys as well. And the definition of ADHD comes from that study and how ADHD is perceived from society's point of view and not Mm. necessarily how it's experienced by the people who have it. So people will say like, oh, inattention, like, you know, talk, talk, talk. Oh, squirrel, like I have ADHD. But Mm. there are so many more layers to that that just isn't accounted for in that definition in the DSM or from people who really don't have that lived experience. Oh my gosh, I didn't realize 
realize it was as nuanced as it is. So I grew up with a parent with the diagnosis. So it's something like I've always wanted to know more about and more so to be a better ally. But also I notice it's something people love to self-diagnose. (laughs) and be like, oh, I definitely have this because I can't keep my attention long. And so it just seems like an overused term of people who aren't diagnosed and don't actually have any of the real symptoms when they just feel like they're not thinking clearly or not into something in the moment. Yeah. In terms of a lot of people maybe misusing the ADHD diagnosis, again, so much, so much nuance there. Yeah, I agree, especially with TikTok. You have a lot of people talking about it, which I think is so important and I love to see. But two, a lot of people only see the hyperactivity part of it, the lack of focus, and that's relatable. So everyone's like, oh yeah, like maybe I do have ADHD. And in response to that, I say, one, maybe you do, because I had a really late diagnosis, but More importantly, inattention and lack of focus and, you know, finding it hard to do things, start things, continue things, finish things. That's actually a symptom of anxiety and depression as well. And statistically, it's more likely that you have anxiety or depression than you do ADHD. I always suggest that they start there instead because we live in a hellscape and anxiety and depression are natural outcomes of that. Yes. (laughs) So it's definitely not here to say like you don't have it because there is a huge underdiagnosis of women in ADHD stemming back to how they came about the diagnosis in the first place. It was done on middle-class white boy children. So if you're not that, your symptoms can and will likely look pretty different. But until you get into the many layers of what ADHD is, I think people should maybe take a minute in terms of self-diagnosing. But I will also say self-diagnosis is completely valid. I don't know if you've ever been to a doctor, but it's incredibly expensive and so prohibitive in terms of getting like an actual diagnosis and can cost thousands of dollars. So I am in no way saying that self-diagnosis is not valid because it is, but exploring all of the possible options is my suggestion in terms of like trying to figure out what it is that you may be struggling with so you can better understand it and work with it. I love that we're having this conversation. So maybe somebody listening who has always wondered about, and it doesn't have to be ADHD, it could be a ton of other neurodivergent things, but maybe they will consider figuring that out. I would imagine for a lot of people listening, that could be very comforting. Just to know like you're not crazy, you're not making something up. I cannot explain to you how validating it is to get that diagnosis. But to your point, there are so many people who will get diagnosed like super late in life and they have successful. But I think even those people can benefit from just the understanding and that relief that you aren't crazy Mm. and that realization that things were extra hard for a reason. I always had to work so much harder than my friends. I would sacrifice sleep to like study for all of my tests and I did well, but at risk of any type of health. I wouldn't sleep, you know, work through lunch. It was coping, but not great. Not great. I would constantly get sick. 
sick. And when I got diagnosed, the relief and understanding and also compassion for my younger self. She was trying so hard with what she had. She kept going. And it's just like, I wasn't stupid. I was just trying to succeed in an environment that was not made for me to succeed. And just realizing that it doesn't have to be that hard and getting, you know, tips and tricks of the trade from people who've had it and lived with it is really relieving. So even if you have a suspicion and like you've gotten this far, if you're 30s, 40s, 50s, like I've seen people get diagnosed in their like 70s. It's just like, wow. Like you're looking, like you just cleaned a dirty window. It's like, wow, everything tracks Mm -hmm. a lot more than it did before. (laughs) Yeah. So how old were you when you were diagnosed? I want to say I was diagnosed between 22 and 23 before I went to grad school, which is great because I would not have survived grad school without it. I barely survived undergrad, but to speak to, again, black and brown women, I thoroughly believe the only reason why I was diagnosed is because I went to a black woman psychiatrist. That is confirmation. You should probably try to find somebody that looks like you. Yeah, I was having a rough, rough time after I graduated college and I was holding it all together because I've lived my life holding it all together. So no one knew that I was struggling. And there was just one day where I'm just like, I can't do this anymore. And I went to my parents. I'm like, I can't do this anymore. And I was just burst out crying. And everyone was terrified (laughs) because on the outside, it all looked good. I graduated from college early. I was working at this great job that I wanted. You know, I was making the moves that you expect someone to make and everything was going well on the outside. And then I went to my parents and I'm like, I can't do this anymore. And then I told them that like, I've actually always felt like this, but like, what else are you going to do? Like, I just kept trucking and I just couldn't truck anymore. And I really struggled in college because, you know, before college, you're in a really regimented schedule, which people with ADHD thrive in. But once you get to college, you don't have that anymore. And it's like up to you. But the time I like got to my parents, like no one really knew that it was that bad. So after they like freaked out a a bit, they just, you know, they were on it. My sister found me a therapist through her friends. My mom, who's a nurse, found a psychiatrist for me. So it was like off to the races pretty quickly after I told them that I was struggling so much. And my first psychiatrist appointment, She's like, you know, tell me what's been going on. And, you know, I went on my whole spiel and she's like, yeah, so it sounds like a textbook case of ADHD. Has anyone told you that? And I'm like, no, it has never been on my radar. And my bachelor's degree is actually in psychology. So I didn't learn about it. It never clicked for me because my understanding of ADHD at that time was hyperactive. And I mean, I was bubbly, but I didn't feel hyperactive. And like, I also always did well in school. So from what my understanding was then, like it never crossed my mind. I was diagnosed with generalized anxiety in middle school. And my mom's just like, okay, like great information and like nothing changed. And I kind of never thought about it afterwards, but she's like, no textbook case. She had me do basically, it's kind of like a survey for adults. And she's like, oh yeah, definitely textbook case. And then I started taking medication for my ADHD and my constant, and I would say probably 200% level anxiety that I had disappeared after I started taking ADHD medicine because my constant anxiety was me trying to solve Mm -hmm. for these deficits. You even have anxiety anymore now that you know what the issue is. Like, was that a misdiagnosis? Great question. Not a misdiagnosis at all. 
But the severity changed completely. Mm. Like I was just living my life at 200% anxiety constantly, which is so stressful for the body, even though I didn't even track it because it was just my reality. So after I started taking ADHD medication, it plummeted. And there was definitely a time where I, I feel like I didn't have any anxiety. But now when it does crop up again, I can name it and see it and do something about it. But I'm not living at that, you know, 200% level. And it's so nice to be able to relax a little and see when anxiety is cropping up and like being able to say that it's anxiety so you can do something about it instead of it just kind of being your reality and not knowing that life isn't supposed to be that hard. I want to segue into how this challenge, what it looks like at work for you and how that's been navigating what I'm imagining is a fast-paced, high-stress environment, product development and tech in general. Tell us a little bit about that. It's been a challenge for sure. So as I mentioned before, I went to grad school. I have my master's in clinical psych research and quantitative methods and had full intentions of getting my clinical psych PhD and becoming a professor and a clinician. Fun times, right? Yeah. <laughs> so went through that process to do that. I did, you know, research all throughout my time there and was full forward in that dream. And I realized that it was too slow. So I'm just like, okay, so what can I do to actually impact people and still use all the skills that I've honed and the things that I'm really good at? So I'm like, okay, everyone needs research. Let me just go into industry, which was a way faster pace than what I was used to in academia, which is kind of like the lazy river of research. (laughs) So not only did I have things that will impact people as what I was working on, but it was quicker and more interesting. I worked in the media and entertainment space. So people were actually interfacing in the work that I did, which was so exciting. And then I got bored of it. They say that it takes like six months for you to figure out how to do your job. I think for me, because of my ADHD, it'll take me a bit longer. So I'd probably say like eight months, which is a challenge to explain to your manager, to your team without disclosing. But as soon as I figure out my job, I get so good at it that I get bored. So it goes from being like, pulling teeth and me screaming, crying, throwing up to like, okay, I worked for three hours today and I'm like good for a week. Wow. (laughs) What? Yeah. And that's like best case scenario. Obviously I'm not always at my best, but like that's kind of how it feels. Mm -hmm. So going from academia to industry, it was a great challenge until it wasn't. And then I'm like, okay, this is too slow. I was like in broadcast TV and I'm like, ugh, this is so boring. It's so slow, like big corporate conglomerate, boring, hate it. I've always loved tech And that was always like my path, whether I was going to be in academia or not. So I'm like, okay, time to go to a smaller company, scrappier company, tech company, which is where I am now. And same thing happened. It was a struggle for like the first eight months until it wasn't. And now I am the highest performing performing person on my team. I like run laps around everyone else. And like, I can do that without risking my sanity, which is really nice. And it still gives a good challenge because I have time to just, you know, think bigger picture, you know what? I love that you're sharing this in particular, because I think when we talk about any type of neurodivergence, we hear it in such a negative, all these disadvantages and it's bad, bad, bad. But if we really like change our thinking and understand a lot of these different diagnoses, if it's a different way of thinking, it can all be negative. And I think that's a perfect example of you like outperforming everyone else and being a very efficient worker is something that 
that you don't hear highlighted a lot as a side effect or symptom or however you want to say it of this disorder. Yeah. And that's also really important to me. So if the audience is going to take away anything from this conversation, it's the struggles that you're having, whether it be with ADHD or, you know, anxiety, depression, all of which I have because, you know, when it rains, it pours. It's that you're struggling because you're trying to survive and thrive in an environment that's not made for you and you're being set up to fail. So it has nothing to do about your abilities or capabilities or who you are or what you can do. It really is just the capitalistic environment that we find ourselves in, which is unfortunate. You know, there's good and bad tech everything, but finding and understanding what your differences are is the first step in honing them and making them work for you. There are so many things that your symptoms can like open the door for, but since we were all born and raised in a neurotypical capitalistic environment, we just don't think that way. But finding these communities will help you break out of that and understand that and find your power in it. There are definitely negatives in terms of any mental health issues, learning disabilities, but if there's a negative, there always has to be a positive. Yeah. And it's a shame that this is referenced as a disorder. If anyone's ever taken Latin like that route, that is automatically implying negative. I get why there's constant improvement and trying to change the name, but I would lobby that that needs to be the next change. (laughs) Oh, honey. Again, hills that I will die on. They (laughs) are always like changing and working on these things, but guess who tends to be left out of those conversations, the people who have it. And still to this day, clinical psych is overwhelmingly white and male. So there are changes that happen. Some of them are positive, but not always. So like when you look at something like anxiety, it's kind of like defined as an overreaction to pretty benign situations, but is it an overreaction if you grew up having to fear that thing? Mm -hmm. Whether, you know, that's true or not, your body's just trying to protect you and it doesn't know that the protection isn't needed right now. So is that a disorder or you just need to do some unlearning? It's tough out there because words mean things and words are also like a hard thing for people to understand because there's so much nuance. So I would definitely recommend people find these communities and talk about lived experiences to better understand themselves because there are so many things that are associated with ADHD and anxiety and depression that aren't in the DSM, aren't in any journal articles, because one, they're hard to research, they're hard to quantify. The things that are published are things that are publishable. So there's just big gaps in the research. And also a lot of people just don't care. (laughs) A lot of people don't care about things that don't affect them. They don't think it affects them. Everything affects everyone, but in an individualistic society, that's not how we are socialized to think about things. So all of it's tough and I'm rooting for everyone trying to go through this because it's it's a time and it's not always a good one. So Yeah, and not caring about it is interesting because it's something I thought about obviously sharing the parent story, but I, it wasn't up thinking about it. I wasn't reading research or whatever. But then I had an experience in the last few years and actually just shared this briefly in like a reel of I had a coworker who had neurodivergence and mm-hmm. I could not communicate well with this coworker. Mm-hmm. We had a very tough relationship. It was really hard getting the things done that I needed from them. And I have no clue what they thought about it on their side of things, mm-hmm. you know, how they were interpreting me and working with me, but it was so challenging. And they hadn't disclosed 
to the organization. Well, I think to like HR, but not to, you know, coworkers. Mm -hmm. And then something was said and maybe somebody made a comment and I just put two and two together. And as soon as I realized that, I was able to better communicate with them. (laughs) I was able to adjust my leadership style, right? Is what we should be doing with everybody, right? You're going to come across different personalities, different experiences and backgrounds where we need to adjust to be great leaders. And I just didn't know that I needed to adjust my style in that particular way. And as soon as I figured out that piece, I feel like we automatically started having a better working relationship. (laughs) Absolutely. Context is key. So if you have that, you know, little piece of info, everything kind of falls into place. Mm -hmm. But then what does that mean for you? Like, okay, so when you go in a workplace, do you disclose? Because I can see a million reasons why you wouldn't. You already have strikes against you as a woman and a black woman. You're already going in where people are perceiving things of you day one and, and challenges in that. But also, is it anyone's business? Yeah. So it depends. I'll just start with how it's gone so far. So I got diagnosed before I went to grad school. I went to grad school and started working with my PI, principal investigator, basically my mentor my entire time there. He was a psychologist, so obviously very easy to talk to him about it, but I also didn't really need to because of the nature of one, our relationship and who he was. I didn't need to explain to him about anything. And we also both had ADHD. So that was super helpful, not having to explain what's going on to people. So I I guess I did disclose, but it wasn't like a thing that I felt like I need to prepare for. Like it just happened naturally. So that was for grad school. My first job, actually I didn't disclose at all. Now that I think about it, that first one, I didn't until the very end of my time there. I was there for about a year and a half, just because honestly of COVID, the change in schedule from, you know, not having the regimented, I need to be at work at this time, you know, leaving at this time, I only have a set amount of time to complete what I need done kind of shook things up for me. So I ended up disclosing at the start of lockdown and working from home, but also it was absolutely situation dependent. One, because we were working from home and two, we started a huge COVID project that was obviously very timely. So I started working way longer hours to get it done and out. And again, I was doing it, killing it, but I had to tell my manager and I'm like, yeah, one priorities here. I can only do so much. I work best doing it on my own time. And if you're going to tell me that this is a priority, then like we're going to need to behave that way. I'm not going to take this huge project on. You can't tell me like this is priority and then keep giving me like the busy work. Mm. I don't do well with busy work. So that's when the conversation happened. I just let my manager know how I wanted to be managed. And that worked well that time, that time around. Successful then. This time around, I decided that I didn't want to disclose because to your point, it's not anyone's business. And I felt like I had a better handle of what ADHD looks like in the workplace. So I thought I had it all figured out. Guess what? Real wrong. The switch between corporate conglomerate to like small, still startup culture type of tech company gave me whiplash. And there wasn't any type of onboarding. There wasn't even any type of like, you know, slow, gradual move into the team. It was really just like I had a deliverable due the first week of work which I'm still confused by. I I didn't even know what product I was working on, but I digress. So like I very quickly had to disclose and be like, this isn't going to work for anyone involved. So even though I planned not to, I ended up having to, but I've been lucky to work with understanding people and also 
in companies and environments that had the funds and the focus to support me in the way that I needed. So I disclosed immediately and then we started figuring out how I could best work with how the team works. It's really been working well. So I think with those support systems and like those accommodations, if you will, and you know, the specific situation in that, like I had the trust of my stakeholders and my manager and my organization to really set my work up to best fit me has really been like the dream combination. So what would you say to neurotypical folks who want to be better coworkers, better managers, better supports in the workplace when and let's say most of the time we won't know if somebody needs different supports, you know, that might not ever be communicated. What can we do just every day, no matter what information we have to make our workplaces more inclusive? I love that question. I think in the same way that people who are, you know, cis, het, whatever, what have you, will start with, you know, their pronouns to, I hate, I kind of hate this word, normalize it. You can do the same about everything, right? Just always set that expectation that no matter who you are, what you look like, you still want the person to determine their own pronouns, like no assumptions there. So I have this conversation with my stakeholders because like, it's something that I enjoy and think is beneficial on my end as well. It's just like, what works best for you? How can we work together in a way that makes sense for both of us? Do you only like afternoon meetings, which is me? I do not like talking to people in the morning. Like, what is your workflow? Do you need to do, you know, the hard stuff at the beginning of the week? Like, how can we format this in a way that works best for you? And that is a great way to start a relationship of any kind, managing expectations and working around that. You know, it's an negotiation to make sure it works best for both parties, but that means we both win at the end of the day. So in that conversation, you will hear any, you know, accommodations, formal or informal that may come up. So I, one of my accommodations that I have for work is I work from home completely, 100%. So all of my meetings are on Zoom. So I have all of my meetings recorded and auto-transcribed. So I can be my full self, full attention in that meeting, having that conversation. And I can also take real-time notes. So after every meeting that I have, I like process those notes, see if there are any to-dos, next steps, reminders, just additional information. But I let my stakeholders know that that's what's going to happen. They need to know that they're being recorded so they can feel free to, you know, tell me to turn it off, one. But two, it's helpful for them as well. They're like, oh, I had a great idea. And I'm like, oh, like, let me look for it. Like, let's go to the exact time in which we have that conversation. So it really just helps everyone involved. And that's my favorite thing about accommodations in general. If you're listening to this and you're thinking about asking for them, accommodations help everyone. Making environments better and more easy to navigate for people who are neurodivergent or, you know, have learning disabilities or disabilities in general, improve everyone's life. I cannot tell you how many things in our life that started off as a disability accommodation. If you see a a sidewalk, one of my favorite stories, if you see a sidewalk and like you have that little dip in the sidewalk Mm -hmm. to go into the crosswalk that people use for shopping carts and, you know, baby trams was one new started in like the 60s or 70s. And that came from disability activists. Uh, I want to say it was in Berkeley. There are people who are in wheelchairs who couldn't safely get off the sidewalk. So they took sledgehammers to the sidewalk and made it easier for themselves to move around campus. And now we don't even think about it. It's helpful for everyone. 
But it started as an accommodation for people who just use wheelchairs, right? And as a product researcher, I think about that all the time because imagine all the people who didn't think they had X, Y, and Z, but are using something that is made for people with X, Y, and Z. It's going to be a great and delightful experience for them. So never be afraid to advocate for yourself because that means you're also advocating for everyone else. Yeah. I love that. And that just goes back to that point. I think people have tried to been honing in on the last few years is like diversity, inclusion, and equity is for everybody. It's not just for the people you think it is. It makes us all better and makes our world better. Thank you so much for just sharing all of this with us. You're very, very welcome. Yeah, no, any secrets that I can share, uh, I feel like it's my duty to do so. So if anyone wants to continue that conversation and hear the spiels that I have about this specifically, I'm everywhere online at the Ellery. So come have a chat. There we go. And if you see us on social, we will tag her so you can find all of the things. (laughs) All of the things. Thank you so much for having me. Oftentimes we just talk about sex and race in relation to privilege, but there are a lot of privileges we have that we don't even acknowledge, like being neurotypical and having workplaces designed for the way that your mind works. And if that's your case, go to work and be more thoughtful about the ways that different folks work and what they may need. Have those conversations and adjust your leadership and communication style to each team. Like Danny said, accommodations help us all and result in better teams and doing better work. Have a great week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 